0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome
1: to the BMJ podcast. A person's right to refuse treatment is based on their capacity to make a rational decision. They have to understand the treatment and the implications of refusal. The rules seem fairly clear, but what happens when someone's admitted after a suicide attempt? Can you be rational and suicidal?
2: I mean, this is one of the hardest jobs that. Usually, quite junior doctors in the uh, accident and emergency department have to deal with.
1: Also, this week, Barrett's oesophagus is on the increase, as is adenocarcinoma of the oesophagus, which can arise from the condition. We'll be finding out how developments in treatment and a new method of sampling can make a national screening test a possibility.
3: Endoscopy isn't the most pleasant experience, and it also involves taking time out of work. Often being sedated and so on. And uh, it's quite expensive as well. So, if we were going to do a national screening program, then I don't think that endoscopy would be really a feasible option.
1: But before all that, I'm joined by Berta Tussman and Edward Davis, who are here to go through this week's news. So, Berta, what have you got for us?
3: Well,
4: the story that dominated this week's headlines everywhere was the one about the diabetes drug Avandia, uh, rosiglitazone, which highlighted a deficiency in regulatory practices for pharmaceuticals. The BMJ collaborated in an investigation with the BBC's Panorama programme, which is still available on the BBC iPlayer. And we also published a feature with accompanying commentary and editorial all in this week's print issue, and of course online at bmj.com. So it's heavily featured, and I think that's the main cluster of news this week. The second story which interested me this week concerns the government's health white paper, specifically the idea that GPs should in future commission all healthcare services for their patients. And um, this feature on bmj.com looks at two groups of GPs who are already doing so and by all accounts quite successfully so. And um, the consultation period ends on the 11th of October and I think it would be quite interesting to hear from our GP readers what they think. So if you have something to say on the subject, please do submit a rapid response to the feature.
1: Yep. Now, Ed... Something else that's been in the news is uh, the European Working Times Directive and how it's destroying junior doctors' training. What have you got to say on that subject?
0: Yeah, it's all stemmed from a Times campaign that started on Monday this week, looking at the European Working Time Directive. Uh, I think it's great to see doctors' work conditions finally being picked up in the national press because there are obviously some problems around this, but I was uh, a little sceptical about the way they've reported it. I think they, uh, the initial figures they reported uh, which we reported in the BMJ a couple of weeks ago, was simply that about a quarter of foundation doctors weren't progressing directly onto no, their specialist training. Uh, and this was reported as proof of the European Working Time Directive driving doctors from the profession, and an uh, which was, I thought, possibly not and correct. And um, and I think more than likely it's, and it's and often the, the case that doctors take a year out or several years and out of this stage. And it's... It is an issue because actually it's an indication that their training pathways aren't really very successful. A lot of doctors at this That's stage don't feel qualified podcast. to make a decision about their specialty. The well, they feel research, they've done the seven, analysis, eight, nine years as an medicine. undergrad and a junior doctor and they have a decade more in the offing and they think this is a good time to take a gap. Um, so it's, it's very common the for doctors morning. to take a, a break at this point. Interestingly, on Monday, the day this all came out in the Times, actually received... An email from one of these doctors who's taking a year in New Zealand as a ski doctor <laughs> to, uh, to use his professional skills in a fun setting and he fully intends to come back and train as a specialist in anesthesia at the end of the year uh, and I mean at the BMJ here we do run editorial registrar posts for people at exactly this point so it's, it's very common for uh, for doctors to take a year off here uh, and indeed the figures also show that although a quarter of doctors were dropping out at that stage almost the exact same number were coming back into the system at that stage. So I think to blame it on uh, working hours, making doctors run away is possibly a little disingenuous.
1: So this is about doctors not being able to work enough, but they used to complain about working too much.
0: Well, there is that as well. Yeah, we published some research in 2004, which showed exactly the same proportion of doctors being upset about their working hours. And the comment was they were too long and junior doctors were being abused. So uh, it seems that doctors complaining about their hours was ever thus. And that's not to downplay the problems that the Working Time Directive has caused. Obviously, some of the rotors and things are really not not serving people very well. But I think there's been a bit of a case of finding the uh, finding the arguments and then picking any facts they can to slowly wrap round it.
1: Okay, thanks.
4: It's called Ed. hermeneutics and literary criticism. That's exactly <laughs> how it works.
1: No rational suicide. In an article published this week on BMJ.com, Anthony David from the Institute of Psychiatry in London and his colleagues look at the Kerry Walterton case, a young woman with a history of attempted suicide, is finally admitted and refuses treatment. And she also has a letter uh, previously written which reiterates that wish. Now, Tony, this is obviously a a complicated case, and you go into it in detail in your article. But what I want to talk about just now is what it really boils down to, um, whether people who have attempted suicide have capacity to make decisions about their treatment. Where do you stand on that?
2: Well, it's obviously a very complicated issue and a complicated question, and each uh, case has to be considered on its merit. But my starting point is that if a person wishes to commit suicide, then their capacity to make decisions must at least be questioned, and that perhaps the presumption uh, that they have capacity must be suspended for the time being. And similarly, as we discussed in the article Um, most people who come to the attention of doctors and and health professionals because of a suicidal wish or a suicidal attempt, most of those professionals in the psychiatric field are familiar with the Mental Health Act. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is invoked to give involuntary treatment. And uh, that, as it were, trumps the mental capacity considerations.
1: What you said there about bearing in mind that someone might be mentally disordered when they refuse treatment in situations like this, do you think that's a a particularly psychiatrist, as it were, point of view because you deal with people who are mentally disordered so often?
2: Yes, I mean, um, a huge part of our day-to-day work is dealing with people who, through their depression or other kinds of mental illness state a a wish or desire or a fear that they may kill themselves and a huge amount of our work is spent obviously trying to prevent that, deciding whether the person uh, needs to come into hospital, needs further support, particular kinds of treatment and a huge amount of that is aimed at preventing suicide Uh, and failure to do that would be seen as a sort of dereliction of our duty.
1: Now, in this case, this young woman presented to A&E, where where these decisions have to be made quickly. I mean, have you seen in your experience that that doctors have problems with this kind of thing?
2: Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, this is one of the hardest jobs that uh, usually quite junior doctors in the uh, accident and emergency department have to deal with. And it's often at three o'clock in the morning and there isn't too many other people around to help. So um, one has to be very sympathetic to their predicament, especially when you're talking about cases in the cold light of day. Mm. Um, But nevertheless, it is important that uh, such people try and come to the right kinds of decision and seek help where appropriate, and so that perhaps a psychiatric colleague should be called in to, to help with a complex case. Um, And further information may need to be gleaned from people who know the patient, their family, uh, other carers or health professionals. So I think it is acceptable for decisions to be postponed until perhaps more information is available, more senior uh, opinion is available, rather than the alternative, which may be letting somebody die.
1: Yes, because uh, that's a, a decision you can't go back on. Absolutely. Now, this case is talking about a, a woman who who did have a history of psychiatric illness, who had tried suicide before, and in which case, uh, you know, everyone can see that her ability to make this rational decision is probably impaired. What about cases where someone has, say, a long-term Condition, they're on palliation and they wish to to commit suicide. Do you think you can be capable in a situation like that?
2: I think, although the general public has an image of a person with a terrible uh, condition who is weighing up their predicament, is making a seemingly very uh, thoughtful. Uh, considered decision that they don't want to die in a very undignified and abject state. But that is a very tiny proportion of people who wish to end their lives in general. And even looking at just people with serious medical conditions, cancer or motor neuron disease or whatever, even within that group, it's rather unusual And most people say that they would like their distress to be relieved, their pain to be relieved, and if that was the case, they will cling on to life. So even in that setting, I think a person has to take a suicidal wish, must consider it very carefully and not take it for granted and at face value.
1: Okay. So obviously, I mean, that just highlights what a a complicated area this is. There isn't any black and white, There's there's shades of grey. So, do you have any advice for people who may find themselves in in a position of making that kind of call?
2: Well, I think, while not wanting to get tied up into all the legal arguments, I think the framework that the Mental Capacity Act provides is quite useful just to guide a person in how they assess the situation. The The other thing is that, People who repeatedly harm themselves often uh, bring out a lot of strong feelings in clinicians. Uh, you know, after all, we're supposed to be trying to uh, help people survive the illness and, and live a, a good life, and it seems very paradoxical that some patients seem to be set on the on the opposite. And sometimes doctors make decisions based on their own frustration and uh, antagonism. And so one's got to look at one's own motives very carefully and saying, am I saying this person has the right to kill themselves because really I'm at the end of my tether, or am I really considering their best interests? So I think uh, one has to be very honest with oneself when uh, coming to final decisions. And, of course, these decisions have to be shared with colleagues especially people with more experience and more seniority, a junior person shouldn't be left alone to make that kind of decision.
1: Well, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. And you can read Anthony's article and an accompanying analysis online on bmj.com. The incidence of denocarcinoma of the esophagus has increased in the last three decades. 12.8 and 5.7 per 100,000 men and women respectively now develop the condition, and the five-year survival rate is poor, less than 13%. Several studies suggest that survival is higher in the patients whose adenocarcinoma was detected by surveillance rather than by presenting with symptoms. So that means a screening programme could help. However, screening in the UK is currently only done by endoscopy, which, though good in terms of specificity and sensitivity, needs to be done in secondary care and is not particularly liked by patients. In a study published today on BMJ.com, Rebecca Fitzgerald from the Hutchinson MRC Research Centre in Cambridge and her colleagues have done an initial trial assessing a new method of screening, which can be done by a practice nurse in primary care and could open the way for nationwide surveillance. Rebecca joins me on the phone now. So Rebecca, could you describe for us your new device and method of screening?
3: So, I mean, you're right, endoscopy isn't the most pleasant experience, and it also involves taking time out of work, um, often being sedated, and so on. And uh, it's quite expensive as well. So if we were going to do a national screening program, then I don't think that endoscopy would be really a feasible option. So we were looking to develop something really much more simple. So what we've come up with is a sampling device coupled with a a molecular marker. Hmm. So this is a very simple thing. It's a little capsule attached to a string, You swallow the capsule, and the capsule wiggles down to the top part of the stomach, and it dissolves over a period of about three minutes to release a spherical mesh sponge. That's then pulled back using the string, and that collects a lot of cells, about 200,000 cells on the surface of this sponge. Then you just pop that straight into some preservative, and that can be sent to the laboratory. And then we process that to test for a single molecular marker which diagnoses the Barrett cells. And we think that's important because we want to make it potentially so it could be automated. So this molecular test, it just stains the, it uses an antibody and it stains the positive cells brown, so they could be easily distinguished from any non Barrett cells.
1: Sure. Now, obviously, with any sort of screening test, you want high sensitivity and high specificity. In your study, obviously, you wanted to compare this new method to endoscopy. How did you do that?
3: Yeah. So what we did was we asked patients to come and first of all follow this cytosponge device in their GP surgery. We collected information there about how acceptable they found it. And then six weeks later, they came for an endoscopy, which they had in secondary care. So just over 500 people did both tests. So we were using endoscopy as the gold standard, and that enabled us to work out the sensitivity and specificity. Now, we knew that this was really a pilot sort of a study. But in the first phase, we found that the sensitivity was 90% and the specificity, 94%, and that's to detect two centimetres of Barrett's esophagus, which is what clinically is relevant.
1: Sure. Now, obviously, a screening programme will need to have an outcome. You know, if Mm. people are found to have this, uh, then Mm. they need to be treated. Treatment for Barrett's esophagus has developed Mm. recently. Could you just take us through some of the advances?
3: Yeah, I think that's a very good point because until recently, I think we didn't have any very good treatments we could off- offer patients, and therefore screening wasn't really something you, you know we could comp- contemplate. But there have been big advances in the endoscopic treatments to get rid of Barrett. So in the past, anyone who was beginning to get early cancer with high-grade dysplasia or early cancerous cells really was looking at an esophagectomy, mm. which is a very invasive procedure with morbidity and mortality. And now we're looking at being able to um, remove these cells by sometimes taking a large biopsy, that's called an endoscopic mucosal resection, and then literally ablating or removing the whole Barrett's lining using something called radiofrequency ablation. And there's really nice data coming out now that suggests that this is very safe and effective therapy. So there's been a randomized controlled trial of radiofrequency ablation published in the New England Journal, and now they've got a follow-up going out to three years or so. Um, And it really looks as if it's very effective. And that's an outpatient-based treatment. So quite different from uh, having to go through an esophagectomy.
1: Yes. Now, you said this is a preliminary study. Um, How conclusive is your data and what's sort of the next stage for this?
3: So the main roles of this study were really to look at how acceptable it was and whether patients would have the test. You know, if patients get a letter from their GP inviting them to swallow a sponge like this, will they actually come to the appointment? Will they be able to swallow it? And what do they think of it? And those were all all met. So patients were happy to come. They found it pretty easy to tolerate. We, we measured that using various scales. So we were happy that we, we had proven those endpoints. So sensitivity and specificity were secondary endpoints. We knew that inviting around 500 patients wouldn't really give us enough to have accurate sensitivity and specificity. Um, so in this study of 500 patients, we had 10 people who had more than 2 centimeters of Barrett's that fulfilled our criteria. So... Um, that's about 2% of our population. So therefore, we knew we'd need a much bigger study to really get an accurate measure of uh, sensitivity. So what we're going to do next is a study that's starting just now, funded by Cancer Research UK. And we're going to take people with known Barrett's this time compare with people without Barrett's. And we're going to, again, just check that we can pick up the Barrett's so we'll get more information on sensitivity and specificity. But we're also going to see if we can use other biomarkers or molecular tests on the specimen to work out the high-risk patients.
1: You mentioned their risk, and that's a criticism that's often levelled at screening programmes at the moment. I'm thinking of breast cancer and the PSA test for prostate cancer. You have to screen many people to save a life, and the treatment for those who test positive is traumatic and it leads to a loss of quality of life, and it might not even have been necessary in the first place. If there was a nationwide campaign to screen for Barrett's esophagus, could that lead to similar problems?
3: Well, I think those are interesting comparisons. And of course, there are lots of considerations about screening, how much anxiety you induce in your population, what the costs of the procedure are and the treatment that follows. If you take breast cancer as a comparison, that's interesting. I mean, the test is quite straightforward. But actually, the treatment is very morbid because if you detect early breast cancer, currently people are being treated with mastectomy. And prostate is also interesting because the prostate, there are different treatments in, depending where you live in the world. But a prostatectomy is fairly major. This radiofrequency ablation, I would say, if, if you compare to those other two examples, actually is much more straightforward and less invasive. I mean, this is an outpatient-based procedure taking 30 minutes to an hour maximum. So you're talking about you know, half a day in the hospital, having a sore throat for a couple of days, being on a softish diet probably being two weeks before you're completely back to eating normally and that's it no surgery so i think potentially this could be a acceptable and cost-effective screening plus treatment obviously there's a way to go with proving that but i think certainly worth serious consideration
1: great well that's a that's a nice point to end on uh rebecca thank you very much for joining us today that's all for this week's podcast join us next week for more research comment and analysis from the world of medicine